Hey, y'all, uh, real quick, the following interview with Erica had some technical difficulties to start the first five minutes. Her audio gets a little bit uh, choppy, but it does clear up, so fear not. And we ended up having a really good interview. Stacy was unfortunately not able to join us. So I decided to make the episode an art crew episode, meaning it's not edited. A bit more foul language that I don't edit out. So if you are listening with kids, I would suggest headphones on or having them leave the room, all that good stuff. I say on the episode, shift in the narrative, because originally it was supposed to be a shift in the narrative episode. So yeah, just give you a heads up. We made an art crew episode. Audio at the beginning is a little bit messed up. Uh, Hope you enjoy the episode. And we are live back with another episode of Shifting the Narrative on Everything Autism. I'm Torin Kearns. And unlike usual, I am not joined by the autism sage herself, Mama Baden. She had some uh, unexpected stuff come up right for the podcast. So I will be hosting solo. Luckily, we have a guest. Uh, Erica, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Erica McCorkle. I'm autistic i'm as torin said uh just before we started recording i am a more high functioning autistic person <laughs> um and uh i have a book coming out pretty soon so hoping to talk a little bit about that and whatever else uh torin has on mind on his yeah, mind yeah pretty much i was like yeah i reached out I was like yeah erica would you mind uh shilling your book on our podcast and she's like yeah cool i love being a shill it's great <laughs> Oh, of all the things that I can and cannot do, showing is actually something that is kind of difficult for me. Like, I can talk about my book, and if people are interested, cool. But I'm really bad at being like, hey, buy my book. <laughs> I, I I am so bad at selling, which sucks, because my job is sort of promoting Stacy's brand on social media. And it's sort of been, I've learned a lot, but it's been very unnatural. I'm thankful for the experience to to expand my repertoire, but yeah, it's selling is never something I was particularly good at. And I guess I'll just jump right into it. Um, what are, since we talked about selling, do you feel like that comes from, because a lot of autistic people, there's a, I wouldn't say a stereotype, but a lot of autistic people do struggle with like lying and sort of uh, glossing up the truth to make it look more polished. Do you think that's an autism thing that you have issues with selling and things like that? For me, definitely. I think it is. Um, like I feel confident and competent in a lot of areas of my life, but when it comes to like being a marketer, I feel like a fraud. It's like, is my book really that good? You know, sort of can I actually like talk about it in a way that makes people interested? Not really. I just feel like I have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, and, you know, going speaking about you know autism having like being about having communication issues. Like I think it goes the other way. Like I I can't really like be sold on things very easily. Like TV ads hate them. Any advertisement commercial like just does not affect me. Like when people try and sell their things to me, it's like no, if I'm not interested, I'm not interested. If I want something, I'll go and seek it out. I really feel, I kind of feel the exact same way with advertising, where 
maybe it's because I people watch, meaning like from the time I was a kid, I'd watch people and how they acted and their body language and their words and how they interacted with each other as a way to try to fit in more. So like when I see ads, I can kind of break down what the emotional beats they're trying to hit is. Like if you see like an ad for cars or testosterone booster or something that's like traditionally for men, the emotional beat is, do you feel like shit because your dick don't work anymore? Well, buy our <laughs> stuff and get raging hard on. That's effectively what they're saying in so many words. So I hear things like that. Um, and this is going to be the worst slash best transition ever. But speaking of hard-ons, tell us about your books. <laughs> I couldn't resist. <laughs> transition. Um, so my books, you know what? If someone gets a hard-on reading my book, good for you. Um, woof. Uh, there are some sex scenes, so it might happen. Um, you know, my my book that comes out in four days, uh, the main character actually has erectile dysfunction. So, you know, hard-ons and lack of mm, lack of getting them sometimes does come up in the plot. Um, okay, anyway, talking about the book itself. So, the book that's coming out is Merchants of Light and Bone. It is a dark slash epic tropical fantasy. It is over 800 pages long. This is a big book um it is about an, an older man he's uh 36 years old when the book starts there, there's uh, a, he, i don't mean to cut you off there's a bunch of people listening to this be like 36 that's not old <laughs> okay in fantasy novels usually the main character is exactly like yeah a teenager 20 you know for a fantasy novel 36 is fairly old so just, just bear with it i am kind of referring to a general trend in fantasy literature here um yeah no 36 is not like old by any means i would not imply that um i actually picked his age specifically because i wanted him and his wife to be a so he actually has uh, two spouses he has a wife and a non-binary husband um but i wanted the three of them to all be around the age where they would have like they could have a daughter who is just becoming like not an adult but like coming of age like she she's turning 15 um and they have another kid on the way so i figured 36 was a good age so that like they could have had their first kid at 20 and then they're still young enough to be having more kids so that age was actually very deliberate um so the main character is 36 years old, he has, uh, his exact number of kids is kind of difficult because it, it starts as like six, but then one passes away just before the book starts and his wife is pregnant with another one on the way. And then later on in the book, he also adopts a kid, but that kind of gets into spoiler territory there. Um, so the plot is that he is a sculptor who sculpts these crystals that glow and he'll sculpt them into the shapes requested by customers and then uh, like sell them to these people. And then these lights can be blessed by a god to repel demons so that any demon that is like gets the lights thrown on them will just 
disintegrate, just die immediately. Um, so these these crystals, they're, they're called crystallites. Um, they are found in a very specific region of his world, which is pretty far away from where he lives. But one day, just out of nowhere, the ground opens up and a whole like huge vein of these crystals are found underneath his village, which is the first time they've appeared anywhere other than this one part of the world where they're from. So this is like big news. It's like, oh, there's, you know, these new demon slaying crystallites have appeared here. And the world is basically celebrating because it's like, oh, we we can, you know, make these cool weapons now. Um, but when the ground opened up, one of his daughters was playing there and it opened up right underneath her and she fell to her death. So Amir, the main character, is not celebrating. Um, the book actually gets really deep into his grief and his sorrow and his just struggle to get through just day-to-day -day life as a parent who lost his one of his children. And that's um, the big emotional aspect of this book is his grief and his revenge as it later becomes. That is heavy. That is definitely very, it almost, so it's weird. And I might put a cover of the book as like the thumbnail or somewhere in descriptions because her, her okay. books is the second book of her series. Her books all have the same sort of color theme and the amount of color and light in, in the covers tend not, tend almost uh, contrast with some of the darker themes, especially in your second book. Was that on purpose or that just sort of be that's sort of a coincidence? Um, a little bit of both. I just really like pretty covers. Um, and I told my cover artist, uh, you know, just make it pretty. <laughs> um I I also have a color theme going. My first book, uh, Merchants of Knowledge and Magic, its color theme was green and blue. So its cover is a lot of green and blue. Uh, this book, the one coming out, is Merchants of Light and Bone, and its colors are yellow and orange. So I told my cover artist do yellow and orange. And then when I write the third Merchants novel, which is Merchants of Dance and Hedonism, uh, that one will have red and purple as its color theme. That's I I like that because it makes it, and maybe this is just the marketing brain. But A, it makes it marketable because you know this is part of this series. And also just the autism part of me likes things that are like uniform and in a pattern. A lot like how autistic kids will line up their blocks or their toys when they're <laughs> kids. So I always like uh, novel series that have the same sorts of covers. It makes it recognizable. But you mentioned you're, you're going to work on your third book. Can you tell us a little bit about your writing process? As do you feel that it's different from other authors because you're on the spectrum? What does it look like? Does it differ in any way? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I feel like everybody, every author has their own style. And I don't know if my autism really makes me that much different from like, you know, some neurotypicals who also are very different from each other. Um, I do plot a lot more in depth than I know some people do. 
and I I don't know if that's an autism thing or it's just a me thing um, because I do have to know like everything that's going to happen in my book before I write it and I need to like have the foreshadowing before like you know some people will just write without really planning and then they'll go back and add the foreshadowing but I don't like to do that I like to include the foreshadowing the first time I write it um, and things like that like I like to know where I'm going I like to know how I'm going to develop the characters I don't like to surprise myself I think yeah. I'm a little bit like that in real life because you know I will plan my days my weeks my my entire life if I can which doesn't always work out I, so do you think I'm glad you brought that up because you actually led into what I was going to ask do is that how your life is normally like do you think your writing process of plotting because i believe in the writing community they call that pantsing versus plotting do you feel like yeah. you plot your everyday life like plan things what you're doing each day what you're doing next week do you feel like you try to do that in your regular life absolutely i'm very i don't want to say obsessed but like it just kind of happens naturally like, I really don't like to be surprised or caught off guard. I like to know things well in advance. Um, and I will plan things. Like, right now I'm on a bit of a vacation um, just from work. Uh, nothing big. And I'm just kind of staying home. But, like, I've already kind of plotted, like, you know, on this day I'm going to do these activities. On that day I'm going to do, you know, I'm going to read. Um, on that day I'm going to play video games or things like that. Um, but also with some flexibility because I do sometimes just need to just stop whatever I had planned and do something to relax instead. So I also try and give myself that kind of flexibility. And what is, so, so you mentioned the flexibility. How do you, I'm thinking of how to, how to ask this question. How do you deal with stuff that is unexpected? Because obviously, as much as we'd love, because I'm the same way, I like to plan stuff as much as I can. But we like to ask some of our adult autistic guests, how do you deal when shit happens, for lack of a better word? How do you deal when, when things go sideways and unexpected things come up and your plans get interrupted? Oh, I get very frustrated. Um, I mean, I just deal with it. Like, it it sucks, but I deal with it. Um, I used to just kind of freeze up and not be able to do things, but I've, I've gotten better as an adult. Um, partially thanks to my partner, like he's very helpful. Um, and he will like kind of encourage me. He'll be like, okay, okay, we got to do this thing now. So um, and, a and lot what, of it is thanks to him. I, I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. In what ways does like specifically, if, if you can, does your partner help you cope with uh, changes or just like some of the, I don't want to say negative effects, but negative effects of being on the spectrum? How, how does he help with that? Because having a support system is so important for autistic people of all ages. Me and Stacy really like to dig into that. So yeah, he is definitely neurotypical and I'm really glad that he is because he just like will know things, but it's like, how am I supposed to know that? Um, like, so recently my car broke down and like on the freeway, it's like, I, I, what do I do? I would have no fucking clue what to do. Um, but he called 911. They got 
a cop to like give us a ride back to our house. And then he's like, okay, now we need to get the tow truck person to like tow it back here. It's like, okay, thanks, Kyle. Like I just wouldn't know who to call, what to do, any of that at any point. Like, I mean, if I, if I were by myself, I probably would have figured out call 911, but I would have felt super guilty the entire time because I think of 911 as like what to do when you're like dying. So I would have been like, is this correct? Is this what I'm, am I wasting your time? And I know like if you, you can get in trouble for like wasting your time. So it's like, I would be like, oh my God, you know, I would call them and I'd be like, I'm not actually like dying. Is this correct? You know, I would seek validation while I'm calling 911. Um, but no, thankfully I had him with me and he just knew what to do and everything turned out all right. I had, I believe I talked about this in a previous episode when Ryan was on, I think. But a lot of autistic people, we tend to struggle when unexpected things happening happen. That ability to think under like pressure and to think quickly. Sometimes some autistics have it, some don't. I don't. And I talked about a time with Ryan where we were in high school, and this is a lot more mundane than a car breaking down on a freeway. But we ordered the pizza, which is difficult because we were, ju- were just old enough that that was right when they were instituting online ordering. So people still called to order pizza. I'm sort of revealing a little bit of my age here. And we called, we ordered pizza. And then his mom texted us saying, oh, we, 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 I, I ordered the pizza to the house too. And we started panicking because we didn't know too, because now we're going to have two pizzas that we weren't planning on paying for. And we both panicked. He had to call his mom to cancel the order because in the panic, we couldn't think of just calling them back and canceling the order. Even something as simple as that. And like, Ryan is not stupid. I, I'm i not the brightest tool in the shed, but Ryan's actually smart. Like he graduated from college with a good GPA and a degree in a very hard major and things like that. He's a scientist. He's not dumb. But the having to think quickly just escaped us. And a lot, and even to this day, even as an adult, I still struggle with that. So I'm glad you have a support system that's able to, in this case, your partner, that's able to help you out in those situations. And that sort of brings me into my next question, which is, do you feel like there are any, and you mentioned the last podcast that it's hard for you to tell what's due to autism, what isn't, because you don't have a control variable. There is no uh, non-autistic Erica McCorkle, but to do the best you can, what are some, do you feel like you have some some negative downsides of being on the spectrum? And also, what are some positives you think of being on the spectrum? Yeah, the negatives are like what you said, like, I just don't feel like I know how to work in society. Like, if I didn't have my partner, I would be so lost. Like, I've thought about, like, if he were to just die all of a sudden, I don't know what I would do. Like, I don't know how I would, like, pay rent. I don't know how I would function. Like, I, I don't know. Like, I, I would just sit on the couch and contemplate whether... I should even stay alive because I, I mean, I don't want to like sound suicidal there. I didn't mean to imply that I'm going to hurt myself. I'm not, I'm not in that kind of headspace. Um, but like, I would seriously just not know what to do at all. Um, and I don't have anyone else who I could turn to if that were to happen. So 
like he's my only support system. Um, so yeah, that's my hardship there. Um, but you know, on the you know positives, I do think that being autistic has some positives. Um, as long as I am supported, I flourish a lot. Like I get a lot of stuff done. I have a pretty good life. Um, I, I do tend to stick to a pattern. You know, I'm like I I work a day job. Well. Again, this is my uh, my going to be my autism coming out. It's my day job, but it like happens at night, so I hate calling it the day job. <laughs> um, and like it's very routine. I do pretty much the same thing every night, and I love it. I love that it's o- it's only three nights a week, and then I have four nights just kind of to myself to write and play video games and have fun. And I love that because I also just I can't like muster up the energy to work as much as um, neurotypical people do. Like I get so just tired after, I, I can't imagine working five days a week. I, I'm sorry. I know some people are listening saying, are listening and thinking like, oh, what a weakling, you know, but I just can't, I can't do it. I don't have the brain power to do five days a week. I think it's good you know your limits. I don't think, I doubt there's many people listening to this podcast that think that because we sort of cultivate a certain type of audience, but it's good that you know your limits because it's better than, actually, that brings me to a question. You know your limits now. Has there been experiences in the past where you've tried to work full-time or work in a sensory unfriendly environment that led you to understanding your limits now? Oh, yeah. Um before I got this job, I worked for Walmart, and uh, I mean, you, you've probably heard plenty of stories of retail, and, you know, Walmart was no different. Um, even then, I would only be given, I think, 32 hours a week maximum, but, like, sometimes it would still be, like, six days in a row, just, like, but just, like, shorter six, for example, and, like, I just get so tired of that. It's like, I'm just, like, uh, I hated it, so... I, I almost prefer longer shifts and yet and less days. I almost say yes days and less days because when you have when you have like four hour shifts, like six days a week, that's six days a week where you have to mask, where you have to be on, where you have to be effectively not autistic enough to function without losing your job. And I feel mm-hmm. like it's almost easier to have longer shifts, like nine, ten, I've done both, nine, 10 hour shifts and four hour shifts, but it's only a few days a week. So you have the days off to recover. When it's like, I have a friend right now who's struggling with that, where he works relatively short shifts, but he works almost every day and he gets pulled in the work shifts too. So I guess he has both the large amount of hours per week and he's in almost every single day. And it's kicking his ass, if I'm being honest, it's really beating him up. Um, yeah. Have you ever dealt with uh, autistic burnout? Um. Yeah, I think so. Um. It probably has been different for me than for most people. Um. It especially did happen at Walmart, and I I think I'm pretty lucky that I have worked with people who are fairly understanding. Um. Of my situation um like at walmart there have been times when 
like I'll just say I can't deal with the customers right now. I, I need a break and like my manager would, you know, let me take a break. Um, it didn't happen often, but it did happen a few times in like the three or so years that I worked there. Um, and honestly, actually, there were a few times the burnout came from the managers. But then, like, another manager would be like, okay, yeah, I know she's, you know, being a bitch. Go ahead and just do something else for a while. So, that's good. I've sounds been very like, fortunate. <laughs> it sounds like you had at least some supports, um, if not all of them. You had at least some supports. Uh, what you, you mentioned the last interview that you really like the job you have now. So what are the features of the job you have now that you really like? So the main thing is that I work by myself. Um, there is a, like another person who like is in the building with me. And like, if there's like an emergency, like I can like, just like kind of walk 10 feet away and like call out to him and you know, he can help me. Um, but like for most of the time I am alone and like I can listen to things like on my phone, like I have my earbuds in and I can listen to music, I can listen to podcasts, I can listen to audiobooks. Like I honestly have a great time at work. Um, and my job that I do is so monotonous that I can like even pay attention to what I'm listening to and still like do things with my hands. Like I can do my job without having to focus on my job, if that makes any sense. No, it's a, a lot of people, well, some people like those sorts of jobs. Some people can't stand them. Like I have a friend, actually the same one I just mentioned, who when they put him at a job, which is pretty monotonous, he, he wanted to shoot himself. But a lot of people, a lot of autistic people, they enjoy jobs. They're sort of routine. They're predictable. They're stuff you can just do over and over and over versus Fat, super fast paced and having shit thrown at you from every angle and you come in each day not expecting, not knowing what's going to happen. A lot of autistics don't deal well with those jobs. I'm actually glad you mentioned that because the last episode that came out before this one, Stacy talked about that, about organizing things and monotony and how some autistic people will do well with that and there are jobs for those roles that some people don't want to work. Somebody might find your job to be really boring or not like the hours, because as you mentioned, you work graveyard shifts. But for you, it's a really good fit. And for a lot of autistic people, jobs like that are a good fit. So I'm glad you were able to find that. Um, for the next couple questions, we actually covered in our first interview, that was like almost two years ago, might have actually been two years ago. So we've had a lot, we've had our audience grow, we have a bit more of a reach now. So I just want to go over some of those that I think our audience would be curious about. So what you're diagnosed autistic, right? Like you have the you have the holy grail diagnosis, the paper that says you're on the spectrum, right? No, actually. In fact, I do not want to be diagnosed officially. And you're I can undiagnosed, talk about that. You, really? I can talk about that if you want me to. Yeah, yeah, feel free to. I didn't know that. I for for some reason anybody thought you said or I was under the impression you were diagnosed. Cause I think you mentioned you've known you were different since you were a kid. So yeah, go into that. I think that'd be really cool. So I am not diagnosed um, officially by any doctor because first of all, I don't believe that a doctor is any better at knowing who I am than I know myself. Like if you ever see those checklists, like, you know, these 50 traits, you know, if you fall into like 
45 of them, you're probably autistic. Yeah. I mean, that's the same shit that doctors use. Yeah, exactly. And I can just read, I can read the list myself and say, yeah, I fit all, well, maybe I'll fit 49 of them. So, you know, I don't need, I don't need a doctor who doesn't know me to be like, yep, you got, you, you're autistic. Um, secondly, I'm thinking more long-term kind of political stuff. I think there is a possibility that people who are diagnosed autistic might someday, like it might be considered like a mental disability and you could be denied medical services because you're considered mentally unable to make your own decisions if you are officially diagnosed. And that scares me. I do not want a little note in my medical checklist saying, see, you know, mentally incapable of making this decision. I want the doctor to believe that I am competent. Yeah, and that's unfortunately, that's not even the future, I believe, just off the top of my head. In the UK during COVID, they had a DNR, do not resuscitate order for the NHS. Basically, if someone came in who was deemed as, who was autistic and deemed as too low functioning, who had COVID and needed a respirator, because they have shortages, they order the doctors to, to don't resuscitate those people. Don't give them a respirator because we need those for more normal, with air quotes, normal people. And they did, they did that during both big waves in the UK, which is eugenics. It's, it's the definition yeah. of eugenics. Yes, so it's it not is. even in the future. It's a real thing now, unfortunately. Um, the UK in particular has a lot of issues with that. That's that's all I'll go into right now. But I do find that fascinating because most adult autistics, they crave, I shouldn't say most, but many, they crave that diagnosis, at least on social media. Maybe my perspective is, is shaped by that. But they crave that diagnosis because they see it as sort of validating. So I find it interesting that like you know who you are and you don't need a doctor to tell you that you have X, Y, and Z because you know yourself. I find that is a very interesting take. So I'm glad we went down this road. I really like that. Yeah, I, I'm again, I'm nothing if not confident. And so what are some of the things, since you're not diagnosed, uh, what are some of the things or traits, for lack of a better word, that you think make you autistic? I mean, again, just go, you could Google any of those, you know, autism checklists and I'll fit 49 out of 50 of them. Um, things like, you know, being organized or feeling out of place or masking or even little things. Like I remember there was a, there was kind of a, a list on Twitter a while ago and it was like a silly thing. It's like, these are some kind of lesser known silly things that might, you know, symbolize that you're autistic. And I distinctly remember one of them is, um, I think we're, it's called like T-Rex arms. Like you kind of walk or stand like with, with your arms kind of in a certain way at times. Yeah, and like I, this. Yeah, like that. Yeah, and I do that. And I just never put it together if that's an autistic thing until that post. It's like, yeah, yeah, I do that. That's actually a comfortable way for me to stand. Um, so, and, and walk actually. So yeah, just even silly things like that. It's like, yep, that fits me. And I think I, this sounds bad, but I think I assumed you were diagnosed because you mentioned in our last interview about 
the books you write all take place in the same world. And it's a fantasy world, and you've been working on it since you were 10, and you even mentioned that you remember the day, the exact day that you decided to write that world, and we'll go into a little of that in, in a minute. And I heard that, I'm like, okay, fantasy world, uh, new has a great memory of the exact day. Yes, this person's autistic. It's obvious. It would have been. It should have been <laughs> obvious then. So I just assumed you'd have to diagnose this because that was just so. I I don't want to say stereotypical, but you see that that sort of memory and that sort of uh, create that like super creativity. You see that so much in autistic people. So I think I just assumed that there, there's no way you could have escaped being diagnosed. If you know what I mean. Like someone would right. went, yeah, that chick is on the spectrum and we have to give them a label. But I think <laughs> it's good that you don't have that label because, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but do you think not having that official label helped you develop like a personhood of your own without having to be like, like Erica, the autistic person? Yeah, I do think it did in a way because like I... Well, one reason I wasn't diagnosed is, like, at least in my community, like, autism just wasn't really a thing. Like, I didn't know about autism until I was about 20 years old when my nephew was born, and he was diagnosed, like, right away as autistic. Um, but then what I learned about autism at that point was very specific to what he has, like, his type of autism, and he's he's a bit lower functioning than... I am, and I know low functioning isn't like the politically correct term anymore, but don't don't I'm not worry really sure about it. It, it, it gives <laughs> it gives the audience an idea. It gives general people an idea of like support needs and stuff. That's why we use it more than to say someone can't function. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, so at the time, what I was told about autism was very different from what we know now. So I didn't even think like, oh, I'm autistic. This describes me. I was like, no, this describes my nephew. It does not describe me. It wasn't until like maybe four or five years after that that I'm like, wait a minute, this actually does describe me a little bit. So. And you sort of partially answered what my next question was going to be, which is, do you remember? You probably do, because like I said, you have a really good memory. But do you remember when you realized that you might be on the spectrum? Yeah, it was, um, well, first, uh, like, my grandparents and my sister were doing a lot of research into autism because of my nephew, so they were learning things, and then my grandma just kind of suggested, you know, Erica, I think you might be on the spectrum. I think that's actually how she put it, too, like, she knew it was a spectrum, um, and I, at first, was kind of like, what do you, like, I just kind of disregarded it, like, I'm nothing like my nephew, what do you mean? And she gave me a bit more information about it that she had discovered on the internet. And I just kind of thought about it. I didn't, like, commit to it yet. Um, it wasn't until I started, like, really getting on Twitter was the thing, I think. And, I like, I started talking to a lot of other autistic people and seeing these, like, you know, you might be autistic if lists. And it's like, oh, oh, this is me. This is me big time. Um, another big thing that kind of awakened it for me, and again, this probably isn't going to be like the most politically correct thing to mention now, but there was a video on YouTube by an Australian doctor, I believe, 
and he's talked about autism specifically in girls. And like he said that, you know, you know, girls often portray or like develop these traits of autism differently from boys. Um, and I know nowadays, you know, especially with like non-binary, genderqueer, trans people, it's kind of a mess to say girl autism and boy autism. Um, but that video was like, oh, oh, this this video describes me perfectly. So that was kind of my awakening. And you mentioned how the ideas of male versus female autism are a bit outdated and a little bit nuanced. We don't really have to go into that here because that's a podcast in and of itself. <laughs> Though eventually I would love to do a panel. I'll get some like female uh, autistics on and uh, if I can find some trans or non-binary, that'd be even better and have a big discussion. So that's, that's something I can put in for one of my goals. But in your books, there's a lot of flexibility and you do a lot of playing around with uh, gender roles and sexuality and gender in general, which a lot of autistic people, there, there, there is a bit of an overlap between the autistic community and the trans community. I always get worried saying that because people use that to basically say trans people are all just like mentally ill. And I'm not stating that whatsoever. But there are a lot of uh, LGBT autistic people what what made you want to write a world that has such uh, flexible gender ideas and gender norms and gender expressions and sexualities? Uh, basically, it just pleases me. Like, I just enjoy it. Um, so in my book, there is a country of people, of women specifically, of cis women and they are basically the Nazis of my world. <laughs> That's Ophelia, um, right? <laughs> Ophidia, yeah. So this society of women, they enslave men just as a matter of course. Like as if one gives birth to a son, that son is her slave. And so, so, ch doesn't... so chattel slavery type stuff. Yes, just the, the worst slave. Every, ooh, it, yeah, it's not, it's not good. Um, it's bad. Uh, so I wanted the other countries to then be the opposite of that, where not opposite in the sense of like, oh, well, women suck, so we're going to enslave the women, but the opposite of being like strictly in with gender roles. So the other, well, there's a bunch of other countries, but I'll focus on Elosia, the other big country. Um, in Elosia, their thing is, be whatever gender you want to be, be whatever sex you want to be. Um, you know, we have magic potions that can change your genders or or your sex, I should say, like your physical sex. So, like, it's very open-ended. And you have a lot of characters, too, which I always find fascinating. You have a lot of characters. Like you mentioned in the opening that the main characters are in a polyamorous relationship and one of them is non-binary. So, and I'm glad we got this. I wanted to ask this question, but I wasn't sure if the discussion would get here. If someone is non-binary, but you also mentioned husband. So how does that work exactly? So um, in this case, this character uses he, him pronouns and calls himself 
the husband of these the other two spouses um because of his personal history with the super feminist country ophidia so he the, was the, actually the, the, slave, the slaveholders yes the slaveholders yes he was like born and raised in the slaveholding country um but through some real dark stuff uh read the book to find out exactly what it is he got away from that and then he became non-binary but he still uses some of these masculine pronouns and terms basically as a fuck you to them <laughs> like that's that's basically how he says it in the book it's just a fuck you it's you know if you come try and enslave me again motherfuckers so i like that i like that a lot and I really am tempted to make a joke about how I'm sure there are people saying that as horrible as the slavery on Ophidia is, I'm sure the men there learned valuable skills that will help them once they were oh. free. Like the governor of Florida <laughs> yeah, said. I was going to say the, the Ophidian <laughs> Ron DeSantis. <laughs> I could almost pitch that because I, I, I listened to your podcast and, and we'll plug all that at the end. But So I've heard you talk about Ophidia and that's all I could think about. Um, so is it because you find sort of like your standard fantasy, like heterosexual relationships. Do you find those a little bit boring, I'm guessing? Boring and um, like I'm not, I don't like the idea of marriage just as a concept. I'm fine with people getting married. I'm not telling people don't get married. Um, I just feel like it's, I, I feel like there's basically just a few reasons to get married. It's either legal, religious, or just a personal thing that people want to do. And in my world, like, there's no legal reason. There's no religious reason. So the only thing re remaining is that personal reason. Like, it's part of a, your culture or just something you want to do. You want to have a ceremony with a person you love to say, hey, I love you. Let's have a party. So that's basically as far as it goes in my world they don't really like nobody really gets married because there's no legal or religious reason for it and do you feel that and maybe once again this is me projecting a little bit do you feel like your world as a whole the creativity the sort of flexibility of how different structures work do you sort of think it's almost like you pushing back against how restrictive actual like real life society can sometimes feel oh absolutely in fact the book i'm writing now is um very much a reaction to what the real world is um more in like less societal like queer and marriage stuff more like capitalism um my current books are called the greed wars and it's literally a war on greed so take that as you will <laughs> like so uh is it going to be like the war on drugs where drugs clearly has won that war <laughs> i i have made that joke but they actually do win the war on greed um through violence and revolutionary means but see, that's, uh... how, that's how you know it's fantasy yeah exactly <laughs> But I really, and the last thing I'll say about the sort of structures of your world, you mentioned in both podcasts you've been on, and in general, you talk about this a lot on your Twitter and on your own podcast, 
that you yourself are asexual. So you do think your asexuality influenced how gender norms and sexuality works in your world? Oh, definitely. Um, like I've always felt like in our world, there's this, like a, I don't know how to describe it now. Like you have to get married. And then once you're married, you have to have sex. And that fucking terrifies me. I cannot have sex. Um, so I wanted to write a world where that is not the expectation for anybody. Like you are not expected to get married. You are not expected to have sex ever. You're not expected to have kids. If you want to, that's great. Awesome. Um, but it's not the expectation and no one will ever kind of push you into it. I, I hate that. That's one of the things that a lot of autistic people, not all, but a lot of, some of the ones who don't have kids, the autistic adults that we've talked to, and me personally have issues with this idea like you have to have, got, get married, you have to have kids. Like that's not really something I'm looking towards myself. Like I hate how people are like, oh, you're a certain age, you want to start a family. I'm like I came from a very chaotic family, as I talked about over and over and over. So that is not something like I want to do, if, if you get what I mean. It's just not something yeah, I'm interested in. Uh, it's not that, like, I work with kids. I love working with kids. But it also convinced me, when I, when I work as a teacher, it convinced me I never wanted kids. So I'm like, I'm burnt out dealing with this for several hours a day. Picture doing this all day, every day. And obviously seeing Stacy work with her clients, she works with parents, and how much work they have to put in. Any parents who are listening to this, just know how much I respect you, because I could never do that shit. <laughs> I could never do it. I don't know how <laughs> you guys do it, especially I kids with either. disabilities. I can't. I can't have kids either. Um, not just the sex thing. Like, I would not be able to adopt. I don't have the desire, focus, energy to raise kids. So... Yeah, parents who are listening, I respect it, but it's not for me. Yeah, it's so since we're we're about to wrap up, tell us a bit about and this is less autism related, but I feel like it's something you're doing and I wanna give people an idea of like autistic I wanna show autistic people making moves, for lack of a better word. So tell us a little bit about Shadow Spark Publishing. Uh, what gave you the idea of coming up with that? How did you get in contact with the other authors to help you found that? T tell us a little bit about that. Well, I'm not the founder. Um, Jess Moon and Mandy Russell are. Um, I came in a few years after that. Um, they were having a, a, a pitch contest in, it was April two years ago. And I submitted, I applied basically with uh, my first novel, Merchants of Knowledge and Magic. And they liked it, so they signed me off. Um, um, we're actually doing another one right now, another pitch bank. So, you know, anyone who possibly wants to join Shatterspark, um, well, I don't know when this this podcast is going to come out. It's for her. Oh, it's coming uh, out on Monday. It's This is this is on because oh, nice. I know you okay. have a release. <laughs> I'm, I'm rushing this forward. So it's coming out on okay. Monday. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so the pitch goes all throughout August. So if you're a writer or an author on Twitter, um, uh, tweet at us with the hashtag uh, SparkPit with a pitch about your novel that is completed. We're only looking for completed novels. Um, and you might join us. Um, but yeah, Shadow Spark Publishing is 
we're a small indie publishing house. Uh, we write books, usually fantasy or fantasy adjacent, but not always. There's some horror and thriller stuff in there too. Um, one of our authors is also like a poet, so. Um, well, actually, more than one of us. I was thinking of just one in particular, but a few of us are poets. Um, yeah, it's, it's a great time. Um, and my, the podcast that we have is, it's me, uh, Jen, Alyssa, and our founder, Jess. And we will just talk about our books, our writing in general, or we'll have interviews with other authors, especially when their books are about to come out. It's kind of meant to boost their books a little bit. So, yeah, it's a great time. And um, I would just and I would just say that their podcast is hilarious. You should check if you're into like writing and fantasy in particular and world building and stuff like that. Uh, check out the shows. All the links will be in the description. But check out that podcast because it is very funny. Um, if you if you if, if you like this podcast, like sort of like humor, you, you, you'll you'll like their podcast as well. So before we go. First off, tell us the name of your book that's coming out and when it's coming out and where people can find it. The book is called Merchants of Light and Bone. It comes out on August 8th. So if this video comes out on Monday, then it's like the next day. I think it's a Tuesday that it comes out. Um, so it'll be out by the time you're listening to this, probably. Um, you can buy it on Amazon.com. Um, Barnes and Noble's website has it. Kobo, I think, will have the ebook. Um, if you want a signed copy, uh, you'll have to like find my Kofi account. I think is what that website is called. Um, go to my Twitter and then like go to my link tree that's linked there, and then go to my Coffee account. <laughs> it's kind of complicated. I um, if you have links, I can also just link. Um, yeah, don't worry. I'll I'll link all of that stuff so people so it's simple for people. Uh, if we're good, yeah, that was fun. Thank you for coming on again. Um, audience really appreciates it. I really appreciate it. Good luck on the launch. As someone who's been a struggling, aspiring writer for longer than I can remember, I really do appreciate how hard it is to write a book, release it, all that stress. And I really think what you're doing is awesome. Well, thank you. No problem, no problem. And that's why we're working to shift the narrative on everything autism. See ya.